welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. But we've been looking as the new year starts, as I often do, with a passage that uh, will launch us in our thinking into deeper Christian living. And I've chosen Philippians 2, 12 and 13, a familiar passage in my life, my preaching career. I never exhaust this marvelous storehouse of the Word of God. So here again with me, God's holy word. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is God's life-searching word. Let's pray. Father, come and do a work of revelation in a text that has much of the mystery of the Christian life within it. It's an inexhaustible passage that I have mined throughout the years of my Christian life and found still more golden ore in it this week. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will reveal Christ's greatness in us and call us to the highest level of greatness possible for his glory this year. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. If you read your Bible and you take a look at the lives that it describes, you are going to find a principle among many, but there's a life principle, and that is this, that God is fond of late starts. Think about the different characters in your Bible. God is fond of late starts. Uh, Abraham, when did it really kick into gear for him? age 80 or so and that's when it just began Moses same thing he tried his first attempt at ministry and and leadership when he was 40 years of age crashed and burned and after 40 more years of poking sheep with a stick in the desert thinking it was all over then God visits him and brings him into the highlights of his ministry in the twilight of his life Now there's another one that I'll add to the list as I begin to kind of give you context for why Paul wrote what he did in Philippians 2. That is Paul himself. When you think about it, the man that made the greatest impact among all New Testament characters, apostle-wise, was Paul, without question. But he got a tremendously late start. He said of himself, he was as one untimely born. He did not meet Christ until uh, he was 35 years old. And I I went back over the timeline of Paul's life through one of the, the great sources on it. There are a lot of people and scholars that have tried to put together and piece together the the timeline of the life of the Apostle Paul. And one of the most authoritative, uh, well, I guess if you're going to be a New Testament scholar, you should probably have a name like Conybeer. I don't even know how to spell it, but my best attempt, I I looked at the spine of the book, C-O-N-Y-B-E-A-R-E, Conybeer and Housen. That's always been the established work, at least it was when I was in seminary, on the life of Paul. 
And it's called the Life and Epistles of Paul. And in there, uh, the authors put together a timeline. Our best guess from secular history and from, from uh, our analysis of how the book of Acts unfolded. Our best understandings of when Paul met Jesus and when he uh, went into ministry. Uh, Paul, Paul was, uh, was not converted until he met Christ on the road to Damascus, right? Acts chapter 9, I think, and Acts chapter 12 later talk about that as well. And he was converted by a vision of the risen Christ, and that automatically qualified him, by the way, to be an apostle. He had seen the risen Lord. So he falls to his knees in his conversion. Imagine in your mind what, what you think he was, where he was at age-wise when that happened. You're probably going to be off the mark. He was 35 years old. Now, in, in the timeline of achievement in, in Hebrew life, that was kind of old. He was 35 years old when he met Jesus. He was given this great commission to go and take the gospel to the Gentile world. And he was promised that God would do great things through him. But wouldn't you think that right after that, with all of his biblical knowledge and having had a personal appearance of Christ, that Paul would be able to get right after it in ministry? Well, he thought so, he thought so but he was wrong. Humanly, he went out there and tried to do ministry immediately. And he, just like Moses, crashed and burned, doing it in the flesh. He crashed and burned, did nothing but cause trouble. And for the, for the next 10 years, we know very little about what happened in his life. He crashed and burned early in ministry in terms of his effectiveness. And he went through untold persecutions. But there are 10 silent years from his conversion until God calls him into formal ministry in the book of Acts. And he calls him to his first missionary journey. You remember how that happened. So 10 silent years, they call them the lost years of Paul. You would think right away God would use him, but God had some refining to do and some more teaching and instruction to bring into his life and some humbling to occur and some suffering to occur until Paul was ready. Paul was a cast off in ministry until a man named Barnabas knew that the time was right and Barnabas went and sought Paul out. He was in a backwater place ministry-wise called Tarsus. And he brought him to Antioch, the great megachurch of that time. And the Holy Spirit came and called Paul into his first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas became the first two missionaries in church history. And they went out and boom, then the Holy Spirit just started exploding in effectiveness. And church after church was started. And by the way, with Paul, riot after riot was started. Imprisonment after imprisonment was experienced, but that first missionary journey was hugely impactful. It lasted some months. They came back to Antioch and reported on it. The apostles there sent them out for a second missionary journey. You know that in the book of Acts. And while they were doing that, Paul decided to take a hand at writing letters to all the churches that he had started on the first journey. And so he began his writing ministry. But he, he started by writing First Thessalonians in the middle of that second missionary journey. And all of that, the two missionary journeys, he started at age 45. And the second missionary journey and the third missionary journeys finished at age 50. 
So catch the timeline. He, he meets Christ at age 35. Academically, he's all prepared. Spiritually, he's not. Ten years of suffering and humiliation and humbling under the hand of God that are silent. Not much happened. Then at age 45, he's called into formal ministry, and he takes the first of three missionary journeys. Much effectiveness. Many churches are started. Many people are discipled. New leaders are brought into the picture. And then at age 50, he's finished with the three missionary journeys. So he's had 10 years of formal ministry. You would think that would go on with great power. Well, God had another plan. Paul just started to go back to the churches that he had pastored to build them up, and he did this on his own with a team of people, Titus and Luke and others. And he, then he started to write as he was traveling and going back to those other churches. He would write to them after he revisited them, and his writing ministry was born. He began to write. He wrote 1 Corinthians in A.D. 56. He wrote 2 Corinthians in the autumn of A.D. 57. Then he wrote to Galatians to all the churches that had begun to experience false teaching that he had planted in Galatia. In the spring of A.D. 58, the great work of his life, the epistle to the Romans, was penned in Corinth when he was revisiting that church. After that, he began to get a burden to go back and bring a financial gift from all the churches he planted to the believers in Jerusalem who were going through a famine. You remember that story. Out of the goodwill of his heart, he gathers all these financial offerings from his churches, and he goes to Jerusalem thinking he's going to be richly welcomed. What he didn't know is that God had a different plan. There were a bunch of misguided people in the churches there who were hostile toward his ministry. A riot erupts in the temple over Paul being there, and Paul is jailed by the Romans because the Romans had a policy that if they didn't know what to do with you, they jailed you. And so he's jailed. His great dream comes to a sudden halt. He's 55 years old when he's, when he's sent to jail in Caesarea under the Romans. So it's, it's an amazing timeline with all these stops and starts. It's not what you would have expected from the most gifted and the most well-taught instrument of God's work in the world. Well, Paul then begins his, his prison career at the age of 55, and he's in different jails in Caesarea and, and then on ships, and he gets shipwrecked once or twice and on the island of Malta, you recall that. He finally arrives at Rome in the, in the spring of A.D. 61, and they promptly put him in Roman prison there. That's where he writes Philemon and Colossians and Ephesians. These are known as the prison epistles. And in the autumn of A.D. 62, now he's been in jail for several years awaiting trial, he writes our book, Philippians. Again, to a church he started, and now he's encouraging long distance. It's safe to say that if Paul hadn't been imprisoned like he was, we may not have the portion in the New Testament you so enjoy today. So he's in jail in Rome from A.D. 59 all the way through A.D. 63. After he writes all these epistles, he is acquitted at Rome. He's 60 years old by that time. After that, we really don't know much. He probably went on into northern Europe. His ambition had been to get to, get to Spain, which was kind of the edge of the, of the Roman Empire in his mind where God had called him. He may have gone to Spain in AD 64, but we really don't know much uh, else of what happened, except that in those later years from AD 60 to AD 67, he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus from different places as he went back to the churches in Ephesus that he he had planted in Macedonia. 
And then finally, in A.D. 68, he's arrested again. We don't know the details, but this time there is no coming home for Paul. He's arrested in the spring of A.D. 68, knowing that his time is now coming to an end. He writes the somber and certain epistle of 2 Timothy from a darkened jail cell. And in the summer of A.D. 68, he is executed at the order of Nero, some months after Nero himself had died. 68 uh, AD would put Paul right around 65 years old. Now I go over that timeline partly because I think it really helps for us to understand the Bible that we have, but also to understand the work of God and the spiritual life. What you expect may not be what he has planned. And the timeline and the vision you have for your life may not be what he has planned. And that often, in his own wisdom, he creates a late start. And he changes the pathway that you might have expected. But there's an encouragement here. Even though Paul got a late start, listen to me, he lived a great life, didn't he? And he had a great ministry, didn't he? It was phenomenal. A late start with the Lord can be a great start under the power of the Holy Spirit and the urgency of the person. One thing that getting a late start in life does for you is it makes you motivated to live for God, doesn't it? One of my favorite quotes is from a pastor, a Puritan pastor in, 86, in, in, in uh, 1650. Richard Baxter was a pastor to pastors in that era. And he wrote this about why he preached so hard and so many times. He said, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. I love that quote. That's guided my preaching ministry throughout the later years of my life. And that's Paul. Paul lived and preached and pastored that way because Paul literally did not know if this would be his last time preaching and his next visit to a jail or if the final death sentence would come through this time. So Paul lived and preached and pastored that way, and I think that's why he wrote Philippians too, particularly these verses, because he didn't know if he'd ever see the Philippians again, and we're not sure if he did or not. So he was writing to them as somebody who preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men, and to, he wrote to some people that he loved dearly because he wasn't sure he was going to see them again, and thinking he wouldn't, he said, here's how you finish. Even though I was present with you, verse 12, now you're, I'm absent from you, and I want you to finish well. And I was so encouraged as I restudied this because... There are times and there are portions of my ministry life where I've had to get a late start. I've had to restart my ministry, as some of you know. Having stepped out of it for a time, some of the richer years of my life were not spent behind a pulpit. Humanly, I regret that. Sovereignly, I accept that. Boy, there's a difference in that phrase, isn't there? And so I've taken Baxter's anthem as my own, and I look at what Paul is saying, and I want to finish well. And I, I know that within the sound of my voice today, there's some of you that are lamenting the fact that you've either had a late start or you're in the middle kind of, of a breakdown. I want to encourage you. If you've gotten a late start spiritually, God is still in charge. He really is. It can come through sin from others or sorrows and sin in your own life. 
Maybe you ignored the gospel for years and didn't come to Christ and you regret those lost years. Maybe you did come to Christ, but you rebelled. You became a prodigal for a period of time and you regret those lost years. Maybe you sacrificed too much of your spiritual life to your professional life and you regret those lost years. Maybe you've, you've made some mistakes that cause you to lose a marriage and you feel that that sidelined you spiritually. Whatever it might be, even if you've gotten a late start spiritually, you can have a great finish. And these principles in Philippians 2, 12 to 13 can help make that happen. As I told you last week, there are seven keys, if I can use that overused pastor's word, keys to a life of spiritual impact. And I wanted to start the year with you to remind you of some of these great principles that I revisit as well. So now take a look at your text, having given you the context of why Paul wrote it and encouraging you to listen well if you're lamenting a late start. Philippians 2, 12 to 13, his words to this church of reminder, seven keys to a life of spiritual impact. We've already gone through four, fast review, I, I, I promise, fast. First was the key of example. Therefore, my beloved, as he says, there was a principle with that. Remember that the greatest example of a perfectly invested life was Jesus. We saw that the therefore is connected to the previous verses in which he talked about the greatest life ever lived, the life of Jesus who humbled himself and became obedient to whatever God wanted to do through him or wanted to do to him. <laughs> And so we saw that the greatest example of a perfectly invested life is Jesus. And so he calls them with the word therefore in verse 12 to live like Jesus did. So there's your first key. Second is the key of vision. He says, now, so now just as, as, as you did in my presence when I was with you as I started your church 10 years before, now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. And the second is the key of vision. Have a vision, the, the principle I gave you was, for your spiritual growth that doesn't depend on others. Paul was saying, I got you started, but in the will of God, God took me from you, but you, you can go forward on your own. You don't need uh, my presence with you. You can spiritually grow by yourself. So develop a vision for your spiritual growth that doesn't depend on others. Now in my absence, keep excelling, he says. The third one was the key of integrity, and that is, is, is the next phrase, work out your own salvation. What does all that mean? It's not work salvation. I showed you that that's biblically not possible. We are saved by grace through faith. This is not a work of salvation. This is the, the, the tense of salvation called sanctification where we are coming more like Christ in our outer life to match the Jesus who dwells with us in our inner life. It's becoming more obedient year to year, life to life, issue to issue, habit to habit, challenge to challenge. The principle I put into words there was work at living in your outer life what you believe in your inner life. And that's what the word integrity means. It means to match what you say with what you do. They match. Paul says, live it out and work it out so that people see the salvation that Christ has placed within you. And then the fourth one was the key of consequence. We got to that disturbing phrase at the end of verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I mentioned to you that one of the greatest handicaps of our current generation of Christians is we, uh, 
we are a generation that's been taught to fear absolutely nothing about God. When in reality, God says, I have a call on your life and I want you to reflect the holiness of my son and I will discipline you into that process and I will help you even if I have to chasten you. I want you to grow, but I don't, I, I would rather you grew on your own rather than you experiencing the consequences of sin or the consequences of my chastisement. So the, the principle I gave you there was, the key of consequence means develop a healthy fear of the consequences of sin. Sin is something that has consequences. I gave you a phrase last week about that. Being saved completely by grace does not being saved completely does not mean being saved completely from consequences. A lot of us as Christians need to understand that. Actions still have results. If we sin, we will still experience the teeth of that. And he's saying, fear that and understand that and seek to live in the, the security of holiness. If you walk with Jesus, it's a safe thing to do. Not from satanic attack, but from the consequences of sin. In fact, I gave you the three failures that I've written down in my journal that I pray God never allows me to experience. One was departing from God's word. Two was dishonoring God's moral code. And three was disregarding God's call on my life of ministry. Those are three great failures. They can be overcome, but they can't be forgotten. So that's where I left you last time. Now we go to verse 13. And there are three more keys, so that makes seven altogether. Am I right? Yeah. So let's take a look at the, the fifth key, and I've called it the key of dependence. And now we get to verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is interesting. I often say that most of the Christian life is simple, but some of the Christian life is a mystery. Most of the Christian life is simple. I know what God says about himself and what he wants me to do, but much of the Christian life is a mystery, and this is a mystery verse. How is it, can be, how, how is it that he can say in verse 12, I need to work out my own salvation, and then in verse 13 say, for it is God who works in me, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This has been a question that Christians have tried to answer for centuries. Where does God's work stop and my work begin? Where does God's responsibility to do it in me stop and where does my responsibility to do it in, with my own will and obedience start? And I'm going to tell you in advance, I will not be able to give you a clear, nice, little carryable answer to that question. It's a tension that God keeps us in, but I'm going to do my best to give you some insight. See, verse 12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's, that's what he's calling you to do. Verse 13 gives you an insight about how God works in you to make that happen. So let me put this principle. It's the principle of dependence, depending on God to do through you what he's called you to do. And I'll put it in a phrase like I did the others. You should see it on the screen. The principle is, I can live it powerfully out because he is working it powerfully in. Let me repeat that. The key of dependence can be summarized with this teaching. I can live it powerfully out because he is working it powerfully in. It's important to see the word for, F-O-R, in your text. You have to work it out. 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, verse 12, for it is God who works in you. The way to do it is based on the fact that God is present and ready to work it out in you. So that's what I would call a hope connector. It's a strange thing about the Lord, but he calls you to do something that in your own strength is not possible, and then he dwells within you to give you the strength to make it possible. It's very interesting. One author I read this, read and reread recently said this. So Christianity really is separated from all other kinds of religions where the deities are utterly impersonal and detached and where their assistance is neither required nor sought after. Think about that. Christianity is a personal faith. It's not a distant religion. And I would say virtually all the other religions of the world are distant and demanding. A distant God demanding that you come through and you earn your salvation. That's not the God of the Bible. He comes and earns it for us. But then this author goes on. The God of the Bible is just the opposite. He loves he cares. He takes up residence in the life of the believer. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the Bible says. He takes up residence in the life of the believer, listen to this, to effect in that believer's life that which is the very expression of his will. The God of the Bible is not an overbearing force. He's also not a God who makes demands on impotent people who are unable to comply and then crushes them because of their noncompliance. No, the God of the Bible is a loving, caring, personal God. Listen to this. Who makes demands on people that they can't fulfill and then comes to live in them to fulfill his own demands. Isn't that great? I'm going to repeat that. The God of the Bible is a loving, caring, personal God who makes demands on people that they can't fulfill and then comes to live in them to fulfill his own demands in the very people he demanded fulfill them. What God expects, he empowers, is another way to say it. It's, it's a marvelous truth that Christ is now in you, not only the hope of eternal glory in heaven, but the hope of seeing his glory lived out in your life right here in this world, in your world, in your family, in your marriage, in your workplace, in your relationships, in your personal battles, in your health struggles, in your loneliness, in whatever it might be for you. He really is there to work in you, first phrase of verse 13. Now this is a, a dynamic that you see in, in the Bible. He, the, he's in a, our God is a God of relationship and grace, not religion and demand. And I think it's interesting. I was reading a, a quotation from a, an individual who had recently come to Christ out of Islam. And, and he was asked why Christianity became attractive to him after all of his years in the Islamic faith. And he simply said, I started to read your book. And I came across the place where Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Can you complete it? And I will give you rest. He said, I quite simply had never heard of a God like that before. And I couldn't wait to meet him. You see, that's the unique distinction of our faith. Now the Bible amplifies this in many different places. You won't see it on the screen because I forgot to give it to our, our folks, but I, I, I saw it this morning and I want to include it. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this mystery of God calling you to live 
in your own life with your own will and your own actions and obedient life but then at the same time he now being present in you in the person of the Holy Spirit giving you the desire and giving you the power to do that they call it the exchange life and some spiritual teachers will call it the exchange life Jeremiah 31 promised this to Israel when they come back to the Lord in the, in the future he said, verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's fascinating. That's new covenant living. That's not expecting them to do something on their own. He says, I will put my law within them. In other words, I'll put a moral understanding and a knowledge of who God is and what, what he wants me to do. When you come to Jesus Christ, the Bible says you become born again. The Bible says the old things have passed away and new things have come. And you have a new heart and a new set of desires. You have a new mind and a new will. And you, start, you suddenly begin to understand the things of God and you suddenly begin to understand the will of God and here's the crazy part now a new part of you suddenly wants to do the will of God did you notice that when you got saved some of you have, have come to Christ gradually and, and you're, you're, you never had the phenomenon of seeing the darkness in your life being replaced by light but even now you, 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 you sense his law within you and he's written it on your heart and then he says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, they're going to respond. That's what new covenant living is. It's going to happen to the, the Jewish nation when they turn to Messiah in the time ahead. But it happens to anybody who comes to Jesus now. I love the fact that he says, when you come to him, suddenly you know he is your God and you are going to be his people. And you shall, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I call that the dual heartbeats of the new, new spiritual life. I did some research on the heart because for years ago my son became a heart patient. Basically the day he was born we didn't know it, but he had uh, massive cardiac uh, deformities in, in his aorta and then uh, what they call an AV canal in, his, in the central chambers, uh, lower chambers of the heart. It was massive and I had to get educated in a hurry as to why he was in his crisis and what the doctors were going to have to do in the two open heart surgeries that followed to repair that. And today, every year when he goes and he gets his, his exams with the cardiologist, uh, we have to take a look at the pictures and he explains the pressures and he explains the, the repair and are they holding? He's a cardiac patient for life and I become well aware of how heart, the heart works. It's too complex for me to explain up here and in detail but there are basically two modes to the heartbeat. You know when you hear that da-dum, da-dum that's really because the heart is working in two phases. One is called the sinus node where the upper chambers uh, contract and then the, uh, the other is called the atrial node or mode and that's when the, the bottom chambers of the heart expel the blood and it's kind of complicated but um, your heart isn't healthy unless you have a thump. <laughs> if somebody listens to you and they hear a thump <laughs> and they're listening and they don't hear the thump, <laughs> you got a problem. What's a healthy heart rhythm? They call it a sinus rhythm. It's when you get the sinus node and the atrial node operating under electrical impulses at exactly the right time and in exactly the right rhythm, and it happens about once a second or so. Now, when you take a look at the spiritual life, he gives you a new heart. What's the sinus node? I will be their God. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah 31, 33. What's the atrial node that answers that? And they shall be my people. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you get a new heart and a new mind. And you suddenly begin to be, understand, thump, he is my God. Thump, and I want to be his person. I want to be his man. I want to be his woman. I want to be his servant. And suddenly this new heart is given to you and you begin to sense this new rhythm. I hope you can understand that. Maybe I've tried to complicate it more than I should have. But do you have a spiritual sinus rhythm? If you're a new person in Jesus Christ, you now have a spiritual sinus rhythm before you had a dead heart. Now you have new life in Christ. Other verses, hope that helps you, help me. Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. So Hebrews explains in New Testament language what God does and what he promised, not only to Israel, but to any person who comes to Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Go to verse 6. He has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Who is the one that gives you the new heart? The Spirit of God. How does he do it? I don't know. I don't know. I was dead at the time. So were you. I was dead at the time. All I know is that after that midnight conversion, when I called out to Jesus Christ... The next morning, I was a different person. I walked down the circular staircase in my house where I was living at the time with my family as a college student, and I walked into the kitchen, and my mother didn't know the Lord looked up at me and said, What happened to you? I didn't say a word. She could see the countenance was totally changed, the depression totally gone, the anger suddenly disappeared, the hopelessness invisible, no longer there. And I, I just said, Mom, I, I gave my life to Jesus Christ as my Savior last night. Well, she didn't know much what to do with that except, well, honey, that's nice. <laughs> but I knew. Why? New heart. I, the Spirit had given me life. Hebrew, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Has that happened to you? The verse that I asked Jean to read in her hearing today, Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There you see the two aspects that we're seeing in Philippians 2. Do you need to live out your life in the flesh? In the flesh means in your human body, in your human experience. God calls you to obey him at your job. He calls you to obey him in the moments of your marriage. He calls you to obey him by worship. He calls you to obey him by purity. That's living your life out in the flesh. But how do you do that? You do it by faith in the Son of God who now lives in you and gives you the power. It's a mystery, folks. But somehow, the thum, the thum, I'm his child, and I want to, he, and he's my God. He's my God, I'm his child. He's my God, I'm his child. He's my God, I want to please him. And he somehow lives within me to give me the power that if I, and I've told you this a thousand times, beloved, if you step out in obedience, he will step up in presence and in power. Didn't say emotion. Notice? but in presence and in power, and you will be able to obey him in the challenging moments of your life. Romans 6 is the last one of a long series. 
You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's another way of looking at it. Who has to do the considering? You do. But who made you alive to God in Christ Jesus? He did. The thump. The thump. Some of you guys are just going to leave here saying, I can't get that out of my head now. <laughs> Humanly, that was my tool. But I hope you see what the Bible is calling you to here. It is God who works in you. So this is the key of dependence. The word God there is emphatic. and In other words, he's saying it's on him. He's the one that can make it possible. You don't have to do this. He will do it, but you have to obey him and live it out with your will. Work there is as a present active participle. It means continuously at work. It doesn't mean just a little moment of revival in your life where you sense God in your life. It's every day. The, the tense of that verb in verse, in verse 13. It is God who daily, hourly works this out in your life. It's not a salvation surge or a revival refire that comes and goes. It's you stepping out by faith and God stepping up in his presence and you obey Jesus in the dreary every day of your life. I think you get it, the key of dependence. Here's the last two, stay with me. The sixth is the key of influence. The key of influence. And here's where some of the mystery arrives. He is working in you, and look at what he does. He wills and works for his good pleasure. This is the part where I've studied it for 40 years, and I still can't explain how this happens. But I know it does, because I've lived it for 40 years. What's the principle? Here's how I put it into words. The key of influence means that God has created two new realities in you, a new will and a new ability. This kind of builds off the first teaching a little bit. God has created two new realities in you, a new will and a new ability. I can't explain it except to say that it's there if you're a believer. You want to serve God and you have the power to serve God and please him. Now people say, where does God stop and I begin? How do I, how do I see God will and work in me? Told you, mystery. Now some people who are believers sincerely go after this and they believe that what verse 13 is teaching is some mystical experience. And so what they do is they get into some worship mode or, or some mystical mode and they, 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 they believe that you get to a certain emotional level and you just kind of let go and let God. And when you're in that spiritual high, the spirit is on you and in you and it's keyed by emotion. And uh, I understand that humanly, but I disagree with it. That's kind of magical Christianity. And I, I just don't buy it. I, I've been around folks that keep chasing experiences. And you know what? Some of the people that have crashed and burned the hardest in the Christian life are the ones that just can't find another experience. And so they backslide big time because they think this verse and God's presence is always keyed to an emotion or a mystical experience of worship or some kind of new secret teaching or an emotional high and they keep drilling up the emotional high and they burn themselves out and they believe if I don't have an emotional high, God must not be real and boy, I've seen him crater. Cults are, are manufactured 
to, to, to get people to pursue this. I've met some people in cultic involvement that it's just scary how, how disconnected they can be. No, this is not about being possessed by emotion or mysticism. Listen to me. It's more about being persuaded by the word of God as it works in your inner life. Let me repeat that. It's not about being possessed by an emotion. It's more about being persuaded by the word of God as it works in your inner life. You see, he's given you a new will and a new ability. That's the principle. And how does he work on those and empower those? He does it through the word of God. When you get saved, you get a new mind. Doesn't 1 Corinthians say, we now have the mind of Christ. Somehow, you now have the ability, according to 1 Corinthians, to understand spiritual things, freely given to you by God. So you get saved, you get a new will and a new ability and a new mind, and so what's that open to? What influences your new mind in Christ? The Word of God. Now you have an ability to hear the Word of God for the very first time in your whole existence. That's what's so beautiful about it. Before you, you met Christ, the Word was dead to you was to me. Couldn't make any sense out of it. When I met Christ, foom! It was like some Klieg lights were turned on in my brain. And I began to understand this book and it's never stopped influencing me. So if you have a new will, a new ability, it seems to me that what he's saying here is how does God work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure? I think he does it through the word of God. That's my long explanation. Sorry for the lengthy stuff. Let me give you some passages that make me think that. All I did was I went back to some of the spiritual masters. I went back to uh, three. Went back to David, Solomon before he fell. He lost sight of this, by the way. That's how he fell. And the Lord Jesus. Spiritual master David, Psalm 119.36. Incline my heart to your testimonies. What's he saying there? How do I have a heart for you, God? Is it through ecstatic worship? No, it's letting your testimonies touch and instruct my heart. So it's the word of God influencing your new mind and your new will. Solomon, who followed David in the better years of his life, followed David's spiritual teaching. And when he dedicated the great temple in 1 Kings 8, this is his prayer, part of his prayer. This is 1 Kings 8, 57. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our father, standing out in front of thousands of Israelites. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments. There it is again. Heart inclined to God by his commandments. You see the connection? You have a new mind. You have a new will. Thump, he is my God. I'm his man. I'm his woman. Now his word influences you to live that out. It's that clear and that simple. Of course, the greatest spiritual master, and, and forgive how I use that phrase because it, it's not meant to diminish him, but, but it's the God-man. Jesus demonstrated every day he lived how to live the spiritual life, how to be influenced in perfection. His whole life was verse 13. God was constantly working in him, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Didn't Jesus say, say I always do the things that my father desires? He was the only perfect, perfectly holy human, wasn't he? 
So we ought to be able to see how he did it and, and how we do it. Now, what did Jesus do? He spent time with the Father, and he lived in the Word of God. Did he not? In fact, he spent so much time with the Father that it bugged the dumb disciples, and they kept trying to pull him away from his time with God. You, you, you saw that in the Gospels, didn't you? He was constantly separating himself from them so that he could be with him. And what was he doing? He was living in the truth of what the Father revealed through the Word of God. The Word of God lived in him. He was abiding with the Father. And thus he always knew what the Father wanted, and he always did what the Father wanted, because he always lived in the power and the brooding power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when he got ready to leave the planet, the night before his crucifixion, he passed this spiritual secret on to his disciples. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. What had he done for three solid years in their, in their presence? He had, he'd been abiding with the Father. What does abide mean? The word means to remain near. Jesus said, I'll be heading out, but I've leave my, I leave my words with you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Dwell in my words under the presence of the Spirit and you'll abide in me. How do I know it's connected to the word? Go down to verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In other words, you're going to be completely in the will of God. So how do you abide? Well, you abide in the words of God. You remain near to them. You live in them. And you let them influence the new mind and the new will. And you step out by faith to live it out. Word, words there in, in verse 7 of John 15, Ramatai, meant the specific utterances of God. It meant every detail of his wonderful Bible. Because every detail relates to every detail you'll face in life. Wow. The principle of influence. What a beautiful blessing that can be. You see, that's, that's, it does, it's not ecstatic emotion. It's not some secret of worship. It's not some spiritual secret. It's not a jacked up emotion that you always have to stay at. It's letting the word of God influence that new mind and influence your new will and acting it out. That's the simple mystery. Now, some people respond very strongly to this. And you ever notice that some people, two people meet Christ at age, I don't know, 20. One by the age of 25 is way up here. And the other one is still pretty much baby stage. You notice this, haven't you? They both have Christ. They've both been born again. What's the difference? The one took this promise more strongly than the other. That's the only difference. Nobody is born more spiritual. <laughs> I used to think this. I used to think, well, I'm just, I'm just not as spiritually disciplined as that guy. And that guy doesn't exist. So let me give you some things that, as you come and think about your spiritual life in the new year. If you want to see the influence of God grow in your life, I have some questions for you as you start your spiritual year. How close to God are you willing to be? How much are you willing to sacrifice to just abide with him? You can change that this year. You can alter that at this point in your life pilgrimage. One of the great spiritual uh, 
teachers of all time, A.W. Tozer, a pastor and spiritual teacher in the 40s and 50s. Don't agree with everything he said, but I sure agree with the God he knew. He was renowned for prayer and spiritual wisdom. Wrote one of the greatest books on the attributes of God. He said, quote, this is my ambition. I want to know God more than any other person in my generation. End quote. Some people say he came pretty close. But he decided to. So, New Year question for you in your spiritual relationship with God. How close to God are you willing to be this year? Second question is, how much of your will are you willing to lose? Are you willing to put some things into his hands this year that you've been caging back? One of the temptations as we make New Year's resolutions is, is to make a resolution to, to satisfy more of our dreams. And uh, a lot of that is involved in individuality. There's a big obsession today with just being individual, being different. And some people tell me, I really don't want to give more of my life to Christ because I'm afraid I'd lose my individuality. Really. You know what I've noticed that's monotonously the same? Sin. Sin is monotonously the same. Sin causes all kinds of people I know to lose their individuality. They become just as chronically ugly in sin as the other people they're with. You know what's remarkably unique and individual? What God does through every life that's given over to him. You're a poema, the Bible says. That's the Greek for a masterpiece that God designed. The Bible says in my Bible, I think it's Ephesians 2, that you are a masterpiece designed by God for good works that he has prepared beforehand for you. You want to be an individual? Get a hold of God's remarkable will for your life and live it out. You'll be a masterpiece of his own design. Well, we've got to close. I'll get to the last key now. That's the key of purpose. Look at verse 13, right at the end. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why does he want holiness? Because it pleases him. Also blesses you, but it pleases him. What's the great goal of the universe? To glorify and please God. What's the greatest purpose in a human life? To give God glory. That's the greatest point of success. You can go be going through massive failure or trauma or, or whatever in your life, but if you're glorifying him and seeking to please him the most in the midst of it, you're a success. Here's the principle. God doesn't begin to get glory until you take action. It's interesting, it's kind of hidden here. God doesn't begin to get glory until you take action. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, but what's implied here is that you need to do the working out. You do need to obey him. You do need to find out what pleases him and do it. Some people do, some people not so much. Every Christian has the opportunity to live into their purpose of holiness or not. It's a determined kind of thing. The word will here is not wishful thinking or dreaming, but it's determined purpose in the Greek. It means you will please God in this moment and in this matter. Some people do more of that. Some believers do less. We have a year before us where we can all do more of that.
Now, some of us, um, I'm going to speak to rather bluntly because um, I are one, and that is I'm going to speak to men. Um, Men, I, I think this is a year in which you need to really live out 12 and 13 in terms of your spiritual life. I, I, I have no idea what's coming upon the Christian world this year, but I have a sense it's going to be different. And our families may be challenged by events on the horizon in our society. And people say, how do we get ready? Well, my, my, my word is just keep get deeper at what, what you're already doing spiritually. But the ones that are to take the lead in homes are men. And I was just going over this, thinking about this as a man, saying my great battle is will I please him even if it's a frightening thing to do. The word will here really got a hold of me. I said, I thought the Bible is telling me as a man to simply decide with my will to obey God more. Regardless of how intimidating it is, regardless of how fearful it is, regardless of how unknown it is, I believe God's really laying that on my heart. And I want to speak to you men about it. Uh, some time ago I was studying the, the fall, and in Genesis chapter 3, uh, and we know that, that Eve was deceived and she took of the fruit and she ate. But it's very interesting in Genesis chapter 3, there's something you may miss. Everybody looks at Eve as being alone in that moment. Verse three of, 6 of Genesis 3, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. But look at this. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam was with her. Adam was called to cover her. Adam was called to stand against sin. And he was silent. I've never gotten over that when I discovered that. What was the great sin involved in Adam's world right there? Eve may have been deceived. Adam was silent. That, was the, that is the, the core sin in men. We know what God wants us to do, where he wants us to stand, what he wants us to stop, what he wants us to start, what he wants us to say, how he wants us to protect, but we get intimidated. You know, people think about Satan as the great deceiver. He's also the great intimidator, particularly of men. We see it in Genesis 3. And I just looked at that again and I said, oh God, help me to stand against all the deceptions that men taste and they let themselves be intimidated by Satan the intimidator. I wrote in my notes here, you cannot be a man and be silent. Whether it comes to habits or relationships or challenges or the unknown. So many of times men we say, well I'm gonna do it when I feel up to it. You don't understand all the demands of my life right now. Or I'm going to do it when I know exactly what to do. I hate confusion. I'll, 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 I'll step out when I know where the steps are. 
where we hide from our responsibility behind all of our obligations, you cannot be a man and be silent when you know what the will of God is. I speak to my own heart, and I call you men to develop a voice for God this year in whatever the Spirit is speaking to you about right now. Now some of you are saying, I barely know how to take two steps spiritually. I'm one of those guys, Pastor. A real late start. Or a failed start. What did I tell you? The Spirit of God is with you. God is present within you, men. And he wants to will and to work a mighty thing in your life. Wants to will to work a mighty thing in all of us. For you are a new creation, a person of example and vision and integrity and consequence and dependence and influence and purpose. This is what God wants to do through you in this year.